0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music digital strategy consultant Jay Gilbert. First of all, have you ever gone to a playlist on Spotify or Apple Music or any other of the streaming services and found that there were songs that were grayed out? Or you did a search on any of those services, and you found the song you wanted or the album you wanted but it was grayed out. Well, this is what's known as ghosting. It used to be you would buy some physical product, a cassette, a CD, piece of vinyl, and it was yours forever. You can play it forever. There was no problem. You owned it and you always had that music. But that's not the case these days because what's happening is songs can disappear from streaming services for a number of reasons. Non-payment to the distributor, for instance. So, that would be if you use TuneCore, CD Baby, Ditto Music, any of those, and you don't pay when it's time. Well, guess what? Your music will disappear from the streaming services. Another reason could be maybe the rights reverted back to the artist. So, a record label had it, and then suddenly the rights go back to the artist, but the record label doesn't care because they no longer have control over it guess what? Your music goes away until you resubmit it. And unfortunately, many artists don't resubmit because they can't afford to. It costs money on any of those music distributors, and sometimes, especially if you have a volume of work, if you have multiple albums, sometimes it costs too much. Now, there are ways around this, but to many artists who aren't terribly sophisticated with this, they might just look at the price and say, you know what? It's not worth it. Therefore, guess what? Your music is gone. This could happen with YouTube as well, so it's not exclusive just on streaming services. Sometimes labels and publishers get sold, and the problem is that all rights holders must agree. And if they don't, guess what? There's a legal hold on your music, and therefore, (laughs) it's ghosted. You no longer see it on the streaming service. So in the grand scheme of things, it takes somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 streams per year in order to make a song pay for itself. In other words, pay enough money back to the artist or whoever controls the rights so it doesn't cost them money. And again, this may be too much for some artists and maybe not attainable in terms of what these streaming numbers are. So we always had these illusions that we'd have deep deep catalog because of all this that artists that never got a voice would be able to hear that thinking might have been a little too optimistic mm-hmm. if you have any questions or comments send them to questions at com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at Courses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's an interesting question. Are tribute acts legal? many of them are raking in some really big money. There are bands like Arrival from Sweden, which is an ABBA tribute band. There's Brit Floyd, which is a Pink Floyd tribute band. The Fab Four for the Beatles. Damage Incorporated for Metallica. Almost Kiss for Kiss. Hotel California for the Eagles. There are tons of tribute bands. And the fact of the matter is, they can gross over $10,000 a night. As a matter of fact, A survey found that most band members make about $500 per night, which isn't bad if you're a musician. Now, it turns out the tribute acts technically fall into a gray area. If you're just a cover band, well, there's not a problem because the PROs like BMI and ASCAP, they actually collect the money for that or they're supposed to from the venue, so there's no problem. However, a tribute band pushes the edge of all of this. And what you find, it can come really close to violating the original artist's rights. The problem is that tribute bands trade off the name and the brand and the images of the original act. And sometimes the original act can take so much and can't take any more. So, for instance, last year, 15 ABBA tribute acts received cease and desist notices from the band's attorney. It's pretty amazing because I never would have thought there would be 15 ABBA Tribute Acts, but yet there are, and yet they receive notices to cease and desist. What brought this all up was a very interesting article from LawyerDrummer.com, all about this. And there were some suggestions if you are part of a Tribute Act. One is don't violate the copyright or trademark, so you can't use the logos and even the fonts of the original act unless consent is given. The second thing is you can't confuse consumers. In other words, your advertising has to be very distinct about the differences between the original act and the tribute act. If it looks too much like it's the original act that's going to be performing, then you violated their copyright. And the last thing is you can't use words like official or authorized in your marketing unless you have permission from the original act. So getting permission isn't impossible. It's been done before. That being said, sometimes it might be too close for comfort to the original act and might not happen, which means that there's so much to think about if you, in fact, are part of a tribute band or you know somebody who is. It's possible to do, you can make a lot of money. Just make sure that you don't violate the original act's rights. My guest today is Jay Gilbert whose love of taking concert photographs eventually translated into being on the cutting edge of digital sales and marketing as an executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups. Jay has created and executed unique online marketing plans for a wide variety of artists that include Elton John, Kiss, Nirvana, Styx, Rob Zombie, The Police, Bob Marley, Peter Frampton, Amy Grant, and many, many more. He's also led the Fox International digital team on Avatar, The Simpsons, Family Guy, among many others. Jay is also the force behind the excellent Your Morning Coffee newsletter and Music Biz Weekly podcast, as well as being a partner in the artist and label service company, Label Magic. During the interview, we spoke about the one thing that artists get wrong with digital strategy, the importance of fundamental artist marketing, the reason why pseudo and unwrapping videos can be so powerful, the importance of radio and much, much more. I spoke with Jay via Skype from his office in Los Angeles. I want to go back to the beginning with you. How did you get started in the music business?
1: Um, I was a musician. Um, I played in bands and, you know, I thought that was going to be my career <laughs> and, uh, it, uh, it wasn't, I played with some great musicians, but I wasn't a great musician. And, you know, I did some touring, did some recording, writing, you know, kind of got the basics, but, uh, really I did a lot of working for tower records <laughs> is what I did, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I wanted to be a musician and then I decided, you know, I'd either eat and, uh, I started working in record stores and, you know, uh, did that for like eight years and you know, just love the music and, uh, you know, from that, from working in a record store, these reps would come in from, you know, the major distributors and, you know, they had some positions available. And I started with Universal in like 1988, I think, worked there for about 18 years and uh, started.
0: I read somewhere that you did a lot of concert photography when you first started as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I started that, you know, as a teenager, sneak my camera into, you know, any concert I could, every concert that I went to. I just loved photography and shot an internship at a newspaper and um I really loved it. And I still shoot to this day. In fact, uh, tomorrow I'm shooting the Temptations. Um I did their last album. I've done albums from, you know, Rick Springfield and John Waite and all sorts of folks. That's kind of a weekend, you know, passion not my living, but it's it, I love it so much. I do a lot of live photography, studio photography, um, but that's you know kind of what I do on the weekends. So if you need any photos, Bobby, I'm your I'm your guy.
0: Your photos are terrific. The ones on your sites are dynamite. I have a question about that. Sure. There's a lot that you do that's in black and white. And I noticed that real photographers have an affinity for black and white, and I'm not sure why that is. What do you
1: think? It's romantic. It's art. I grew up, you know, I had my own darkroom, you know, when I was growing up and I developed my own photos and it's just, there's something about the smell and the tactile nature of photography. And I just love black and white photography. The other thing that it does is it takes away all of like most they don't have smooth, perfect skin, and so especially as you age, you know you you have unevenness with the the tones of your face. Black and white evens all of that out. It lets you get away from the distractions and look at the piece, you know, by itself. Right now, I actually do shoots in intentionally for black and white, and and you shoot them a little differently, and you light them a little bit differently for black and white. And what you do is you're still shooting in color, but as it comes up on the monitor when you shoot. You have it so it goes through a program called Capture One, and you have these um, settings already set, and so it comes up on the screen in black and white. Um, we just did a shoot with uh, Brett James. Now, Brett James, you may not know the name, but he's written, you know, uh, eighteen number one hits, uh, including "Jesus Take the Wheel," and you know he's he's like a a Nashville, you know, songwriting genius. But he's putting out his his own music.
0: You were part of uh, Universal New Media.
1: Yeah, I, I worked at Universal for a, you know for eighteen years, and started you know in the field as a rep. And uh, you know the last part of my tenure there was working in uh, their. Well, they had a division called ECAT, Electronic Commerce and Advanced Technology Group, and it was led by, um, uh, among other people, Albie Galutin who I'm sure you know, but a lot of people may not know, he's a a record producer, you know, he did not only Saturday Night Fever and Barbara Streisand and things like that, but he did one of my favorite bands, Jellyfish. And so I, I was a huge fan of his. And, you know, that was back in the day when the original Napster just launched. And we were trying to come up with, you know, like Press Play and MusicNet and our own proprietary digital platforms, you know, before, you know, Apple launched. Do you know Howard
0: Siroka? I'm sure you do.
1: Howard Siroka is a dear friend. Yeah,
0: yeah, for me too. And we used to have these discussions all the time, and he'd tell me as much as he could. But what I always found interesting was the fact that you guys would see all of the latest and greatest in music technology like way before anybody else would see it and be able to, to make a decision on it way before. Yeah. That being said, I'm kind of curious because you would obviously see things that were in the gestation stage. Yeah. And it must be hard to make a decision on something without really knowing whether it's going to work or how well it's going to work in the future.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, And sometimes it surprises you what takes hold, right? Because, you know, in our lifetime, we watched inferior uh, platforms win out like uh, VHS over Betamax or, you know, things like that. And so it's not always the best that wins. And, you know, there's a lot of folks that love great quality sound, you know, um, uh, Cobas and HD tracks and some of these, you know, high-res audio, you know, Amazon HD. And um, they sound really great, but I think you have to kind of balance convenience and practicality with these things too and sometimes that's the difficult part because you get excited like i remember when howard and i were working together you know it was some of these 5.1 and 7.1 really cool surround sound mixes you know i think it was called dvd audio at the time and man they sounded phenomenal i got crowded house's first album and an elton john album that was you know mixed for that and it was just such a great experience but it never really took hold outside of kind of the you know uh, the music aficionados. um although, if I can digress for a second, the you know that Dolby Atmos, you know, I went up in the studio with uh, Greg Penny recently and and Michael Etchart and listened to uh, some music um, in the studio with Dolby Atmos. And I mean, I had tears streaming down my face. It was the most amazing audio experience I've ever had. And look, I'm hoping that, you know, that could be something that could take hold. And, you know, I know that with Amazon getting behind it, kind of opening it up to, you know, uh, the general public in a way that maybe the, uh, you know, the music, uh, what would you call it? Kind of these audiophiles, I guess, you know, uh, is a bad way of putting it. But some of those folks, they they hear all this great music And they see all these great and use all these great devices and things, but they some of them don't take hold because they're either expensive or, you know, they you know they're not convenient for folks. But I you know I'm hoping that Dolby Atmos will kind of cross that line.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I've had the experience with Greg as well. Uh, He's been a friend for a long time, and I was equally as impressed. I've heard it in several different scenarios now. Uh The only thing that I wonder about is, yes, it's been released to the public. Yes, you can get it. But there hasn't been a lot of promotion around it. Right. And the thing about it is, it's very difficult to promote because the only way you could do it well is if you hear it. And if you can't hear it, you can't tell anybody (laughs) about it.
1: They don't get it or what do you say it's immersive? And they go, Oh, well, is it surround sound? And it's like, as you know, it's not surround sound. It's, it's something so much deeper and, and better. And you're absolutely right. You, you have to experience it to, to get it. I didn't get it until I went up in the studio and actually, you know, heard it with my own ears um, because we've all heard, you know, quad and 5.1 and, you know, all these different iterations, and, and they're all great in their own way, but this this is something different, and you know more about, you know, the recording, engineering, producing thing, you know, a million times more than I do, but I can tell you that one of the things that grabbed me about this was that, you know, it can take, you know, these sounds, whether it's a horn section, drums, bass, whatever, and turn them into these objects that it can place anywhere in space around you. So it, it feels like it's coming from, you know, behind you or from above you or whatever. And for someone who knows what they're doing, like, you know, like Greg Penny, it's, it's magic. And the other thing that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm fairly new to this, but one of the things like with DVD audio and and some of these surround sound things is that it was difficult if you were say in a car listening or listening with headphones, whereas with, with Dolby Atmos, you know, it kind of knows where that listener is in the room and can kind of situate the sound for the listeners. Is that kind of how you understand it too?
0: Well, you know, I was in studio C at Capitol, uh, for a demo and I walked around the room and I specifically walked around the perimeter near the Mm -hmm. walls to see what it would sound like. And, you didn't have to be in the sweet spot, unlike with the typical 5.1 or 7.1, where the sweet spot was fairly narrow, this was really wide, and I really enjoyed that. Now, there's actually something in live sound, it's by L Acoustics, it's called uh, Leiza. It's the same thing, only for live, essentially, and they found that you can't do stereo, as you probably know, in a live situation, but when you use this particular system, 95% of the audience can get the experience. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So I think that says it all there, that in fact, it's something that's uh, much more pleasant to be around than, than we've had before. That all being aside, let's talk about what you're doing now.
1: Sure. Well, I I am a partner uh, with um my uh, my partner in crime Jeff Moscow, Um, He and I run a company called Label Logic. Now we both worked with major labels, you know, our entire career. And um, about six years ago, we decided that we were we were ready to move on and 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 do our own thing. So what we do is label and artist services. Um, so what is that? Well, it's like we're the label infrastructure so for a couple of management companies we are the label and then we partner with a distribution company and and right now kind of our key distribution company is ingrooves you know which is owned by universal sure and a lot of folks get confused with what a label is and what distribution is and we we help them with that and we help them to do all the things that a label would do. We help them, you know a lot of this stuff is about planning. You know, you don't want to just drop something in the marketplace. You want to create a demand for it. You want to know who your audience is. You want to run analytics. You want to have your street team together. You want to have all sorts of great tools and assets, and you want to be very deliberate with your release. And we found that that works really well um, for our company. So we're starting to grow. We have, um, we just uh, brought in a product manager and a social media person, and we're working with some amazing, amazing clients. And it's been, like I said, about six years, and I look forward to going to work every single day. No two days are the same. I work almost every day and you know and love it. it's It's just been a really, really great ride for the last you know five, six years.
0: Is there a typical online marketing campaign?
1: No, I think that that's the problem is when a record company gets overwhelmed, they start doing a a kind of a cookie cutter marketing plan. Um, And what we found is that even with like artists, every marketing plan is different. And, you know, we did a panel at the music biz conference um, called a playlist is not a marketing plan. (laughs) And we did that, you know, we had Larry Matera on, you know, from Warner Brothers Records and you know Lloyd Hummel from InGrooves and we had some really smart people on the panel, but basically it was to tell folks, look, are are you know playlists important? Sure, sure, they're important, but it's one one piece. You know, when we were talking to Larry, for example, uh, with Warner Brothers, a very small percentage of his spins Uh, for his artists came from Spotify curated playlists or Apple music curated playlists. Um, When you or I hear a great new song, we don't rush to dig through playlists. You know, we go to the artist page, you know, Mm -hmm. on our digital service provider. And what, one of the first things I do when an artist or a management company comes to us and says, you know, can you help is I look at their artists and I look at how they're set up. And you got to have the basic blocking and tackling and a lot of them they're just so busy doing the things that they do writing recording touring you know all those things and there's so much to do now with socials and youtube and digital service providers so what we do is we we look at the data and we look at for example you know the the spotify artist page do they have you know an artist image and do they have a banner image and are there social links there and do they have their bio and is it updated and do they have images just simple basic blocking and tackling that's free that they can do are they paying attention to that and then we use different tools to look at do they know their audience Um, it's shocking to me sometimes how few artists actually know who their audience is because they look out in the crowd and they go oh my audience is that but it's not it, if you look at your social audience you know facebook twitter instagram That audience may not be the same as the people that you see out in the crowd. And then you go to the digital service providers, you know, the Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Deezer, those folks, and rarely do those totally align. So you have basically like three audiences, and are you looking at, you know – Spotify for artists, Apple music for artists, all these free analytical tools. And if you don't have the time to do it, you know, I'm sure, you know, you know, someone who does, or you could bring somebody on board, whether it's your, you know, husband or wife or girlfriend or whoever in your street team, depending on what level of artist you are. There's so much data out there that what we try to do is take all those different data sources, pull it all together and look at it. But two things. One, what does it really mean? And then number two, how can you make it actionable? How can you take that information and route a tour or bring it to radio or talk to the digital service providers to show them that maybe this, you know, maybe you go to Spotify and go, you know what, this is really overperforming on Apple Music and they're driving most of our business. You guys have missed the boat on this. You know, there's so many things you can do with the data you know, so our day-to-day thing to answer your question in a very long winded way is that each artist is different and each release is, is different because there's, you know, there's seasonality, there's, you know, uh, what type of music it is, you know? So yeah, it's every time we have a project, we're, we're starting from ground zero.
0: You know, you bring up a point that's very interesting and, and it's something that I see continually. It's that the fundamentals of of just about anything. If you don't get those right, then nothing else really matters, but it's very easy to overlook them as something that's too simplistic or I'll get to it later or one of those things. Yeah. In sports it's a big thing and I think that's why we see championship teams, but you can actually translate it over to what we
1: do as well. That's a great analogy. It's and we always call it that. You know, Jeff and I call it basic blocking and tackling. If you don't have your fundamentals down, you know, then you're lost. That's where it's not sexy, right? It's, it's, uh, it's work. One of the things that I talk to artists and managers about all the time is, you know, their YouTube strategy and everybody thinks, you know, they, oh yeah, you know, we post stuff up, we put stuff on YouTube, you know, we, we got it, but it's so much deeper than that. The basic blocking and tacklings, let's start with, you know, when you put your videos up on YouTube, you know, there is this, you know, SEO, search engine optimization. You know, there's a way for people to find your music because you'll notice when you're watching videos on YouTube, that right rail, you know, those stacked videos on the right side, you know, that's what's, you know, they're feeding you this based on your habits. And to optimize that so more people see your videos, you know, you have to do things like your file that you upload. You know, it can't say, you know, um, G5392.mp4. It's got to say, you know, artist name, title. You know, it's got to be something that can be searched. So that that's the just the file name. And then, you know, you can change the thumbnail. It's so easy to do that. If you go on YouTube, you can see all these video uh, thumbnails of people who are blinking or the back of somebody's <laughs> head, you know, and you're like, that doesn't look compelling. You know, you could take it, and it doesn't even have to be um, a frame from the video, although it can be. You can put anything in that thumbnail that you want. It's super easy to upload, right? So that's part two. Just, And then the other one that most people miss is just the consistency of the title of your video. So let's say you're an artist and you have 10 videos on your page. It should be artist name, you know, song title, and then version. You know, so Beatles, you know, uh, what, you know, I saw her standing there and then live or studio or lyric video or whatever. And if you go by that simple, you know, um, simple way of posting it and you've got your file name and you've got your thumbnail and you've got that, and then you've got like an intro video to your page, you can double your, your YouTube views. I've seen it happen. You know, just with those simple little basic blocking and tackling, people kind of overthink it and maybe they put a lot of budget into their concept videos. But the one thing, you know, that I tell clients all the time is, don't worry about spending a ton of money on a concept video. If you meet with, you know, some of the guys at YouTube, they'll tell you when you release a, 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 like an instant grat focus track or you're releasing a video that you should have multiple videos that roll out over time for that song. Like the first one might be a pseudo video. And for those that don't know, a pseudo video is just the, uh, the album art or the track art with the song as the audio bed. You've seen these things on YouTube and probably wondered, well, why is this here? Well, because YouTube's the number one streaming service, you know, not Spotify and people build playlists out of that because they don't have to subscribe. They don't have to pay. They, everybody's got YouTube and, Sometimes those pseudo videos get more plays than the concept videos. So that's one video. It might be a lyric video. Um, one that always cracks me up. We, we call it the uh, unwrapping video. <laughs> and all it is, is it could be anything you want. But I, I have a really great video editor, this guy named John Andoska, who puts these things together for me. And he does a lot of work for Capital. Anyway, it's just somebody unwrapping the CD or vinyl putting it in the player or putting it on the turntable. And then there might be a glass of wine there or a lava lamp or a dog on the couch. And they put the needle down and you don't even see the person. You're just seeing the thing spin. It's crazy. But when somebody sees that in their social feed, they'll stop and, and watch it. And we get sometimes so many more views on that silly little unwrapping video. And then there's a, there's a link that, you know, links if they want to hear more and, the last thing I'll say on this, and then I'll stop, I'm sorry if I'm running off, is that that other thing is, you know, having that link there right below your video in your description. And it should be, you know, what we call the smart URL, right? You know, like a link fire or feature FM or actual smart URL from Gupta Media. Something that it's one link that when they click on it, a landing page pops up and has Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, has everything on there. So, you know, they don't have to run an errand. It's it's all right there. You do those just basic blocking and tackling things and beautiful things happen.
0: Jay, fundamentals aside, what's one thing that artists get wrong with digital strategy?
1: These days, it's they focus too much on trying to get on big playlists. <sighs> you know, there are ways that you can tee yourself up for success with the digital service providers by giving them what they need and listening first. Um, But most of the newer artists that we work with, the first thing they say is like, how do I get on these uh, Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, you know, whatever, how do I get on these big playlists? And the first thing we do is like, well, you know, let's step back a moment. That's, That's part of the plan, you know. But we've seen this happen before where a track will get placed on a big popular playlist and then typically those larger playlists have a shorter shelf life. You know, maybe you're only on there for a week, maybe you're only on there for two weeks, but then you're, you're done. You know, when they pull that song off or it gets deeper into the playlist, now what, you know, it's a better strategy to be on user curated playlists, you know, DSP curated playlists, be on a lot of different playlists and build from there and be everywhere and the other thing that people miss is that it you really want to be in that top, you know, 15 or so tracks because that's where people are engaged. You know, like that's when you're driving to work or you're, you know, you're going to the gym or whatever it is. You're more engaged with the beginning part of that playlist. So if you're number 295 out of 300 songs in a playlist, there's not going to be a lot of engagement. You know, we we call those dry streams you know, uh, wordplay intended. And, and so what we try to do is get people to step back because, you know, we meet fairly regularly with the digital service providers. And one of the things we've learned is that people come into them and say, you know, gimme, 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 this is what I need. We take an opposite approach. We come in there and go, how can, how can we partner with you? How can we collaborate? What can we do with you? Do you have any programs that you're testing? Um, you know, what they'll tell you is they want early music, really early music. So we do that. We we produce these things. Um, it's just basically a PDF, just a beautiful photo of the artist with some, you know, the narrative with a few bullet points and then a link right from that PDF where they can listen to early music. And that's, that's so important. That narrative is, you know, why should anybody care? Here's three sentences of... You know, Bobby Osinski's got a new album coming out. Okay, well, that's great. Everybody's got a new album coming out. But this is a record he's always wanted to make. You know, it's about a particularly difficult time in his life. It's aspirational, you know, whatever. That narrative is key. In fact, now when you go to Spotify for Artists and you enter your track for consideration for playlists, which, you know, any artist can do by signing up for Spotify for Artists, you have to type in a narrative, So preparing that stuff well in advance, we like to do that because then we're in sync with the artist and management. And then when the PR team is brought on board, they're operating off that same narrative. Then it becomes really powerful whenever anybody asks anybody on your team, Oh, so what's this new project about? Everybody has that same powerful narrative and it goes to Spotify and so on and so forth. But to answer your question, I think streaming is so sexy right now and it's what everybody wants but it's such a small piece, you know, and there's so much you need to do before you get there. You know, there's also, you know, like people will come in, we had a conference call today with a radio promotion person. And he was saying like, he gets these calls kind of like that. And it's, Hey, I want to be on K rock. You know, how can you get me on K rock? (laughs) It's the same thing. It's like, slow down, cowboy. We'll, we'll get there, but let's be deliberate and let's plan this thing out and launch in stages and make sure that we're all flying in formation.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about radio for a second, because it seems to be less influential than ever. And if anything, the popular stations seem to be taking their lead from whatever's happening on streaming rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah. It used to be the other way around, right? I mean, it used to be that, you know, the streaming services were watching radio really carefully and and I'm sure they still do, you know, on some level, but I do know from my friends at radio that, you know, because they can get that data, remember that used to be call outs, you know, yeah, it used yeah, to right. be so manual, you know, and now they can, boy, you see right away whether something is viable. And the way that somebody explained it to me from one of the major digital service providers, it, it was really eye opening for me. They said that, Once something hits street date, they know more about it than you do. Before street date, you can promote it and say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And we're going to go on tour. And we have all these drivers and we have this PR and all this stuff. And that's great. And they want that information. They want all of it. But once it hits street date, they don't need you anymore as a marketer, as a promoter, because now they have something more valuable. They have the data, they know who's listening to it, where they're at what their demo is, how many times they spun it, you know, if they put it in their own personal library, I could go on for hours. They know so much more about what's going on with your music than you could ever know. And that was the thing about, you know, radio. We talked about call-outs. You know, that's how they would kind of, that was your report card, right? Well, now, um, with all the data that's available today, these digital service providers, they have all that at their fingertips.
0: Okay, so how important is radio in the grand scheme of things
1: to an artist? I still think it's important. I really do. It may not be what it once was, but it's still how I believe most people still consume music. It's it's free, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. You don't need to have a certain format or player. I still think radio is super super important and, you know, there are hits that are being broken on radio. Um. Having said that, they've had, they've been humbled. You know, there's this, you know, downloading came and then it, it's kind of waned a bit and has dropped in popularity. And now it's, you know, streaming and internet radio and all sorts of other ways that people consume music. But still, I, I believe that radio is still super important.
0: See, I believe that there's going to be a revolution in radio pending the legislation That makes them pay for artist performance, which they haven't done that. So, what I see happening is the station groups shedding their probably worst performing stations and much of it going back to local control, which will bring us closer back to the way it used to be, where you have, I think, more of a chance to get into the hearts and minds of listeners and radio in particular when you have maybe a local station that's, yeah. that's trying to break you, which used to happen, you know, way before the station
1: groups. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I, 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 I concur, you know, I, I think it, it's got to happen. It, it's, I think it's going to happen, but I don't think radio is going away. If anything, I think it's going to be stronger in the end because it's going to be, as you described, it's going to be hyper local like it used to be. It's going to be. There's going to be a sense of ownership for the the listenership in those particular markets, um, because you know, as radio grew, it became a little more homogenized, and pretty soon it was like you'd go into any market and you'd find kind of the the same selection of stations, and and I think this could drive that in a really healthy way. But just like the music industry going from physical to digital, there I think there's going to be growing pains.
0: Well, fingers crossed on that because it needs some sort of a revolution to happen. Let's go in a slightly different direction for a second. Tell me about your Morning Coffee newsletter and your Music Biz podcast.
1: Sure. Well, let's start with the podcast. Michael Brandvold, you know, my, my co-host, he had been running it I mean, I've been doing it with him for five or six years, but before that he, he had done it, uh, for years. Um, I met Michael, I was a digital, um, point at universal and he was the digital point, uh, for doc McGee and kiss. And uh, so you know they were on our roster, and we did a lot of work with them. So whenever I wanted to do a promotion, or you know promote a new record, or something around the tour, or use their ECRM, you know which is a fancy or uh, you know abbreviation for uh, email lists, I would go to Michael, and we would have these great conversations just on the phone about digital strategy and marketing and sales and. He's not shy. He's got very strong opinions about things. And more often than not, we would uh, we would agree. And, you know, I was in San Francisco once and we went and had dinner and I just, I really liked him and we had a lot of conversations. And one day we were just ranting about something and he goes, you know, you should come on my uh, music biz podcast, you know, and we can just do that. And so I came on once or twice. And then after a little while, you know, it was like we were dating. He goes, you know, do you want to, you know, you want to be my partner in this thing? And I said, yeah. And so we do it every week. We never—I mean, rarely ever miss a week. We do it, you know, every Thursday, and then we put them out on Fridays. And you know, we've had folks like you. We've we've had lawyers. We've had artists, and we just love the conversation. It's just like you know, you and I were sitting in a coffee shop, going, "What do What do you think about radio or Dolby Atmos or whatever?" And it's just that conversation. You forget that there's other people listening. You're just having such a great conversation. So that's that's how the podcast kind of came about. And as your morning coffee it was interesting. I left Warner Music Group a while back. Gosh, how long ago was that? 6 7 years. It was my last kind of major label job. I oversaw Amazon Music globally for WEA ADA, which is a, a Warner company, Warner Brothers company. And after I left I decided that I I wanted to do something different. So it was I was between jobs, and we were talking about you know maybe starting um, uh, Label Logic. And uh, my friend Sean Rakowski, who who was a sales guy for ADA and left to run a pressing plant in New Jersey, when he was between jobs, he sent me this email, and it had you know like ten artists that he really liked. And I noticed there was a whole bunch of people copied on it. And I listened to the music, and he and I are pretty aligned with our musical tastes. And I, I called him, and I said, that, that was a great email, but you know like, why are you doing that? And he said, well, I, I don't want people to forget me. And then the light bulb went on in my head, and I thought, that's what I want to do. So I looked at some of the emails that I subscribed to, and I knew I wanted to do something on technology. And I saw something, I think it was a Wall Street Journal it was either that or the New York times, I think it was wall street journal and their email was called um, your morning briefing. And I went, I love that. You know, so I started your morning coffee kind of stole half of their name and uh, it was just my Rolodex. And I know you're not supposed to do that, but I just grabbed my Rolodex and had maybe 200 music industry people and started sending it to them every single Friday morning at at 5am. And then it started to grow from 200 and a couple of weeks ago it passed 10,000. Wow. So yeah, it's been, it's been really great, but what it did. And, and so it, for people who don't know your morning coffee is a highly curated look at the music industry every week. It's just a lot of the stories, you know, that I all pull from, from you, Bobby, you know, when you write things that I think the audience would love to hear about, I, I put them in there. And what I do is I put, the title of it, you know, who wrote it, and then like maybe two or three sentences from the story. So if you're busy, if you're in an airport, you can just kind of scan through and get a sense of what's going on. And then if something's really interesting, you can click through. And you know, with with emails in the music industry, if you got 16, 17% open rate, that's pretty good. Click-through rate of maybe, I don't know, two, three percent, you're doing pretty well. You know, I noticed right away that I was like over doubling those numbers. So I knew people were interested and I was watching the data on what kind of things people were listening to, which I'm, you know, reading and which kind of things they were ignoring. And just over time, the, the the best thing that happened from that, and it certainly wasn't planned was all of a sudden, like I would get a call from one of my favorite artists or favorite artist managers or somebody, you know, from some big corporation, you know, that I read about. You know, in the newspaper all the time would call up and go, "Hey, kid, i want to I want to talk to you about such and such." And we started getting some clients from that because, you know, as Doc McGee says, uh, and and Doc McGee is a a longtime client and friend, and he has you know he's forgotten more about the industry than most people know. I always write down all the little things that he says because they're they're so great. But one of the things he said to me one time was, "It's big because we say it's big," <laughs> which is another way of saying perceptions reality. Yeah. Well, if people perceive you to be on the cutting edge of keeping on you know on top of this stuff, you know, not unlike what you do. Then sometimes people come to you and go, "You know, I, I need some help with this. You know, I'd like to hire you." So long story short, it's really helped Jeff and I to grow our business. But anybody who tells you that they have this new music business down is lying because it's changed while you and I have had this conversation. And yeah. as you know from all of the things that you write and you post, it's evolving and changing, and it's so exciting. but that's the great thing is it's it's very fluid.
0: Last question, Jay. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way
1: or someone imparted to you? Wow. That's that's such a great question. I used to work for this guy named Bob Schneiders at Universal and he was he was my mentor, my idol. I mean, I just I absolutely adored this man and what what there's simple things that he he taught me. One is it doesn't cost anything to be nice. There's no reason to be an asshole. There's no reason to be toxic. And that's one of the great things about having your own company is you can now choose not to work with toxic people. And so, you know, that was one thing. It doesn't cost anything to to be nice. And one of the other things that has always kind of stayed with me is, you know, my partner, Jeff Mosko, um, he worked with Barry Gordy for a while and, you know, we're, we're big, we're big uh, you know Motown backers. And one of the things that Barry Gordy stressed with his artists is that if you're on time, you're late that they called it motown time. And so Jeff and I have adopted that. And when we go to meetings or we have calls or we're traveling, we're super early to everything, and it's just in our DNA. and and I tell folks, you know like we speak at uh, USC and UCLA every quarter and um, you know, we do other kinds of engagements, you know, with students and we tell them all the time, you know, if you're serious about this, act like it, you know, I mean, make sure you're early, make sure you're prepared, make sure you plan, you know, those kinds of basic blocking and tackling. And like we, we talked about at the, the top of the show is it's, it's not sexy to do all that basic blocking and tackling and, and prep and, you know, the fundamentals, but, Man, it pays dividends over and over again. You can find out more
0: about Jay at jgilbertconsulting.com. That's J Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T, Consulting. All one word, jgilbertconsulting.com. You can also find out about Label Logic at label-logic.net. That's label-logic.net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to Circle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, MixCloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Tune-in Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for a literally new podcast. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.